Well, before we get to the uh, very serious but fun scripture passage for today, I wanted to uh, embarrass somebody here this morning. We have a beautiful new piece of furniture, a table for the Lord's Supper, and this was designed from paper all the way to carving and putting together, staining and varnishing by our own Alex Stanton. So let's give him a hand for this. Yeah. That took time, so thank Alex again afterwards. So um, let me pray for us, and then we'll walk through this, this word together. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness to us, that you have given to us Jesus, that you have given to us your word. And we pray that as the people of the Old Testament period heard your word, that that all typified and pointed to what you said through Peter. We pray that we also would hear this message of the certainty of Jesus' victory and the assurance that gives us. Help us to find ourselves in him today because there's no life and hope outside of him. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So this passage made me think of the movie Searching for Bobby Fischer, which some of you, I'm sure, saw years ago. Fischer, as you may know, at one time was the reigning champion in chess, the reigning champion in the world. He was a brilliant child prodigy. And this fictional movie follows the career of a chess coach who was played by Ben Kingsley, and he mentors a young student who shows all of this promise and all of this genius. Now, could this young prodigy be the next Bobby Fischer, hence the title of the movie? Well, I'm going to jump to the closing scene. In that scene, the shy young protagonist, who might be the next Bobby Fischer, is pitted against a slightly older, very competent, very cocky and self-assured older boy, and they're playing for the championship. And the parents and the coach are in this other room where there's a closed caption TV, and they are watching the match on closed circuit television. And the minutes ticked into hours as the parents, on their faces, begin to demonstrate that they're worried that their boy will not win, or perhaps that the chess match will end in a stalemate. And then at one point, the coach, Ben Kingsley, looks up at the TV, and he has this twinkle, this gleam in his eye, and he says, he's got him. He's won. Now, the parents are dumbfounded, right? Because the chess match is still going, and they're saying, what? Well, see, the match is over if the boy makes the right move, even though the two players must play out seven or, four or, or more moves to get there. Well, it all ends happily. Uh, the boy, the young kid, makes the move, and sure enough, certain victory is played out. Now, see, to the parents, the end result of the battle was uncertain. They couldn't see it, so they worried. But the coach saw what they couldn't. He knew that victory was at hand, that it was impending, though not yet fully in hand, because the game still had to be fully played out. He knew his prodigy would triumph. He saw what the kid was seeing. 
Well, dear friends, this is a, to put it mildly, a complex five verses. <laughs> and uh, there are some phrases in here that are debated. I think I have read 30 different commentaries and articles, sermons, and listening to sermons on this passage, and there are a few disputable phrases, but I want you to hear something. There is one indisputable truth that rings through as an overarching declaration through the whole passage, Jesus wins. No matter what we might say about a few different phrases, his victory is certain. It's already been secured, and it's up to us and the power of the risen Spirit or the risen Christ in the Spirit to, to play out all the moves, as it were. You see, the Son of God has come to battle the forces of darkness that were pitted against him, and this passage tells us that he prevailed. Now, at first glance, in the experience of the apostles and in so many ways of these early followers of Jesus, Jesus' suffering seemed to be defeat. He seemed to lose at one level. But Peter is saying Jesus has passed from death to resurrection life and to exaltation glory. That throughout this passage is the whole sequence. We've already sung about it in two or three songs today. And so I want to begin this whole section with the end. Verse 22, Jesus Christ has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God. With angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to Him. See, through Christ's suffering and His death, and then his, his vindication, God has checkmated all that opposes him. And friends, that's great news. And Peter's focus is not only on Jesus, but on his people who follow him. And so why all of this mention of, of Jesus' suffering and his vindication through that and, and the game of chess and the checkmate that is certain, why do we need to hear that? Because... There's a latent theme of suffering in this first Peter, uh, this letter, First Peter, and it's now toward the end beginning to dominate the letter. It is woven throughout. The word suffering is in Greek is pasha, or pasha. Perhaps you've heard like the paschal lamb, the suffering lamb, and it appears more and more as we go through this text. And so we saw last week in chapter three, verse seventeen, that Peter said it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will for you, then for doing evil. Now, sometimes Christians are maligned by the world because we are living out of accord with the Scripture, and the world simply points it out. And, and that's, we're bringing that on ourselves. But other times, so often, and this is what Peter's really addressing here, Christians suffer because we're identified with Christ. The world doesn't want to bow to him. And so soon we'll see in chapter 4, verse 13, that we are to rejoice insofar as we share in, as we participate in the sufferings of Jesus. So friends, as we suffer, as we go through Pasha or Pasha, 
we need to hear that Christ has won. And that we already now, to some degree, share in His victory. That's the whole point of this very deep section. Let's bring it home. Why do we need to hear checkmate? Why do we need to hear that Jesus won? Because at times we feel that we are losing ground or we're hurting or we're doubting or we're feeling rejected, pressed down by life and pushed against by the world. Perhaps you or a loved one, you're losing a battle with cancer or some other disease. Though I continue to fight hard with medicine and prayer and optimism and nutrition and exercise, and I will not stop fighting, I am ceding ground, slowly but surely, to a lifelong kidney disease. You see, genetic mutations eventually do their thing. So I need to hear that Jesus wins. Our hope is not in medicine, but in the resurrected Jesus subjecting all powers, including the jackboot of mortality and death. He has subjected all of it under his feet. Or perhaps you need to hear this today because a relationship in your life has gone a little sideways, or a lot sideways, and you don't know how to mend it. And you try and you try, but it almost gets worse. And there are those times in life, I I know this, I know you feel this way sometimes, when we want to throw up our hands and say, I can't win. I can't win for losing. And when we say, I can't win, that's where the Lord, in a sense, wants us because he reminds us, I have won. That's the point of this passage. And so this triumphant word is for you when you're hurting. And it's not only on the micro, personal level, level, but friends, this is on the macro level. Peter is dealing with this in a very global way. And in some ways, the post-Christian West and so many uh, commentators, Christian and non-Christian, are calling our our age, our time, the post-Christian West. And in many ways, our post-Christian West or the world is moving back toward the the pre-Christian ways of the Roman world. One author wrote about our culture this way. He said, we are experiencing, in many ways, a reemergence of pagan brutality. I mean, just look at the news. Look at the rise in crime, the rise in the murder rate, and so forth. He goes on to say, severity without mercy, lack of forgiveness, oppressiveness, breathtaking violence, and pitilessness. No lack of pity. (laughs) And again, that's the world that these early Christians were inhabiting. They were in a threatening Roman Empire. Okay? But Peter is saying that when you're in Christ, To some degree, you're in Christ, but out of place in the world. Being for Jesus entails experiencing some resistance against him. And that's why we're calling this whole series Exiles in Faith. And so Peter says to us exiles, be of good cheer. (laughs) 
You can expect these trials from the world and simply, simply from living this life. Persecution that we face as believers, though, is not our defeat. It is a win because Christ has redeemed us and he will conquer. So the first theme that we're going to look at from these next few verses is that Christ's death brings us to God, and that is our comfort. You see, Peter is grounding everything here in the experience of Jesus. He says, because, that's the start of our section, because Christ, or for Christ, also died for sins. So notice he's saying, when you suffer, remember that Christ also suffered and he died. But he wasn't just an example. He was the righteous dying for the unrighteous. You see, he died once for sins. He died for our inattention to God, for our rebellion, for our indifference. So he's not just an example. He is the Redeemer who atones. And here, Peter is once again reminding us of the human condition and why we all so need Jesus. There was a British historian, uh, and he was a fellow at Oxford. His name, well, his name was David Cecil, but he was called Lord David Cecil. And he observed Europe and all that you know, Europe went through with World War II all the brutality and all the carnage. And this is what he wrote. After the cruelty and carnage of the war, the jargon of the philosophy of progress. That's a great phrase. There's a whole lot of jargon about the philosophy of progress then and now. And he said, that jargon taught us to think that the savage and the primitive state of man is behind us. But barbarism is not behind us. It remains within us. That's an accurate biblical description of the human condition, and Peter's bringing us back to that. Isaiah 59.2 says, Your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. But Peter is saying here, Christ offered the most magnificent substitution ever, giving His life for yours. And so he stood in your place so that you and I can stand before God. He fully paid our debt. And he closed that gap of separation that Isaiah talked about. But Peter goes further. He says he brought us to God. He brought us to God. And so Jesus fully identified with us so that we can fully identify with God. And why do we need to hear that? Why did they need to hear that? Because again, in this life as exiles, we feel sometimes so alienated. Or we feel outside a circle of relationships and we're hurting. We feel excluded. But Peter is saying to them and to us, you get God in Christ. Christ has brought you to God. You are welcomed into his home. And so Christ's death comforts us. But Peter also says, and really this is the heart of the passage, Christ's resurrection ascension, I'm going to put those two together, are our victory. 
Christ's resurrection ascension are or is our victory. Look, if you will, at verse 18b. Peter continues his thought. He says, Christ was crucified or suffered or died in the flesh, but in contrast was made alive in the spirit. What does he mean by that? He is saying that the power of the Holy Spirit raised the crucified Son to incorruptible life. Death will never touch Him again. He is now fully glorified in our humanity. And so if flesh refers to the sphere of human limitations of suffering and death, then spirit refers to the sphere of power and vindication and new life. Again, Jesus is raised by the power of the Spirit to that sphere of life where death will never touch Him. Okay, and so we just left the very easy part of this passage. (laughs) Now it gets trickier. This is what's been keeping me up all week. It goes on to say, in that Spirit, in which, it's referring to the Spirit that raised Jesus, the Son of God, or Jesus, went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah. Now let me tell you what Martin Luther said about these phrases here. Martin Luther was not shy about stating his opinions. He liked to assert his understanding of passages. But this is what Martin Luther said about these three verses. (laughs) This is a strange text and certainly a more obscure passage than any other in the whole New Testament. I still do not know for sure what the apostle meant. (laughs) I almost put my jacket on just to show you this morning. I I really do know. Um, But it's okay if we take slightly differing takes on this. And I just want to say happy Father's Day to me and to you. Um, This is a wild passage, but it's wildly wonderful. Now let me tell you what it doesn't mean, what we must rule out. We rule out, the Bible itself rules out, it eliminates this way of seeing it. Christ did not go into hell to give a second chance of salvation to either fallen people or fallen angels. Why? Because that does not fit at all the totality of Scripture. It has been appointed once for man to die, then comes judgment, says Hebrews 9.27. But Here's one uh, interpretation, okay, that we could take. These spirits who are in prison are people who lived during the time of Noah, okay? There were people alive at the time of Noah, but who are now, we would insert the word now, at the time of Peter's writing, this is a hard saying, but they are, are in hell awaiting judgment for their rejection of Christ. So what would that mean? That in that case, Peter would be saying that the pre-incarnate Christ, in other words, Christ before he came in embodied form, 
through His Spirit, Christ preached to people in Noah's day, again, who are now spirits in prison. Now, there's a warrant for this view, and it's in the passage or, or the letter of 1 Peter. Back in chapter 1, verse 10, Peter said this, and it's very interesting. He said, concerning this salvation, the salvation of God in Jesus, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you in the future, right? It had come to the, in, in the time of Peter. Those prophets, prophets searched intently in the scripture and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and the circumstances, notice, to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. Now that really seems to fit this passage. And in fact, 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 5 calls Noah a herald of righteousness. So in this way of seeing it, it is saying that the pre-incarnate Christ through the Spirit preached through Noah to his contemporaries. They mocked him, they rejected the message, and they are now spirits in prison or in hell. And so in that way of seeing it, Peter is saying to, to us and to his followers, just as we are resisted for our faith, so is Noah. Right? Why do you build a boat in the middle of the desert? Judgment's never, ever going to come. Why do you believe these ridiculous things? And Peter is talking to the followers of Jesus and saying, take comfort. Others have experienced this mockery. However, <laughs> there's an increasing number of commentators <coughs> and scholars who view this a bit differently. A lot of preachers do too. You've heard of Sinclair Ferguson maybe, Alistair Begg. They would tend to go this way. And I think there's great warrant for this, for this position. It's slightly different. It is saying that Christ went, yes, and proclaimed to spirits in prison, but who were those spirits in prison? Well, it may be that they were and are imprisoned demons or fallen angels who disobeyed in the time of Noah and in particular influenced human rebellion. They were malign spiritual forces. Now, why would we see it this way? Well, there are a few reasons. The Bible only once refers to people, interestingly, simply as spirits. It does so in Hebrews, but it calls them spirits of people made just. But here it just says spirits. And in the overwhelming majority of cases, the Bible uses the word spirits to refer to spiritual beings. And so... The passage here in 1 Peter also contrasts spirits, and in a few, a few words later, it will say souls or people in the boat with Noah. So spirits seem to be something different than people. Again, it could very well be that these are fallen angels or demons influencing the world and rebellion against Jesus. 
And so the point is, human sin that we've talked about here isn't the only problem in the world. And remember, that's where Peter ends this whole section. What does he say? Jesus is now at the right hand of God with what? With angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. So if this is the right way to see it, these beings or these spirits are in the pit with Satan awaiting the final judgment. This is what 2 Peter 2.4 teaches. This is what Jude 6 teaches. And so again, we can't be naive about human darkness or the spiritual forces at work in disobedience. And and do you see how these two views actually kind of come together? Whether it's referring to people who rejected the word of Noah in his day or the spirits that influenced them, they're all this passage is saying, under the subjection of Christ, Christ wins. That's how all the interpretations come together. Ephesians 2, 1 to 2 says this, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. There's human rebellion. But Paul says there, following the course of this world, following the prince, of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. That seems to be what Peter is saying. Now again, the world hears this and says, you've got to be kidding me. But the writer, uh, Tish Harrison Warren, who, who writes sometimes for the New York Times, she wrote this recently. She's a believer, and she said, Those of us who long for lasting peace in this world cannot base that hope on an idea that people are inherently good and therefore unworthy of true judgment. Instead, we find our hope in the belief that God is at work in the world and He is as real, more real than evil the evil that is in human hearts and the evil influenced by spirits that stir up rebellion against God in this world. And so here's the sequence of this passage. Christ was crucified. He has been raised. He has ascended. And in the power of the Holy Spirit, He went not down into hell, but he went to the right hand of the Father. That's what the language seems to be indicating. He is coronated as king. We sang that right before the passage was read. King of kings. And so this is saying the doom of the spirits and the pose and the worldly forces that oppose Christ, their doom is certain. And Christ must win the battle. And he has. And so what is bad news for those forces, for those wills that oppose Jesus, Peter is saying that is good news for us. It comforts us. It encourages us. Jesus Christ has triumphed over all evil in both the human and the spirit world. 
I'll tell you a phrase that, that really encouraged me when I was in junior high school, and I, I was struggling with faith, and I was wondering, you know, how do I deal with challenges in my life? How do I face this disease I have that's eventually going to play out? How do I figure out who I am and what do I believe? There was a phrase that, that just floored me. It says, when Jesus came the first time, he stood before Pontius Pilate. But when Jesus comes back, Pilate will stand before him. And you could substitute all sorts of things for Pilate. When Jesus came the first time, he stood before the powers of the world. And in a sense, before the spiritual forces that opposed him, and he died. But when he comes back, all of those forces will stand before him. And disease and death will be put under his feet. Rejection and hurt will be put under his feet. Well, we're not quite done. <laughs> There's one more little phrase here, and it's about being baptized into our victorious Savior. You see, look at verse 20b. It says, while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Now let me stop there. This is simply saying that you are united to Jesus in his triumph. When you suffer, you can be encouraged. Verse 21 says, Baptism, which corresponds to this, that is to the flood, and the salvation of Noah's people through the flood, this saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. Now, this is what Peter's saying. Baptism corresponds to, a deli uh, to the deliverance of Noah and his family through the waters. Those waters were like a, a, a ju judicial ordeal. They were coming the waters word to judge human wickedness, but Noah and his family were found to be innocent and righteous in the ark, the ark that God provided. And so Peter says, literally, this ark typified baptism as God provided this safe sanctuary through the judgment. The people were preserved through that judgment by the means of the boat. But it wasn't just a physical thing. They were accepted by the Lord. They were acquitted. They were saved. And so the doom of the flood prefigured what Christ went through for us. He went through doom. He died for us. And so like a mold is an image struck on a coin so the ark in the storm was a type of water baptism into Christ. And so Peter is saying, because Christ has been raised, we will pass safely through death into eternal life, accepted by the Father. All those things that Noah and his family went through in the boat, that all typifies or points to our baptism into the true boat, 
Who's the true boat? Jesus. And so it's not water that saves us, but water seals to our lives the victory of Jesus. This means, friends, very simply that Christ has branded you as his own. And baptism has pledged you to live for him. His mark is on you in these difficult waters that we go through in this life. Let me give you a quick illustration on this. When I was a kid, I bought a 1976 Fender Stratocaster guitar. I had saved up for it for a few years, and, and I bought it in junior high school, and I'm glad I didn't get rid of it. It's now worth about 10 times what I paid for it. <laughs> and many years ago, I think I was in high school or college, I, I had a, a moment where I thought I just wanted to sell it. I bought an acoustic guitar, wasn't really playing, so I put an ad in the newspaper, and a bunch of people showed up, but one time, Three guys showed up, and they came and they started looking at my guitar, and they didn't play it, they weren't friendly, and they were kind of examining it. They were looking at the unique markings, and they stood there, and I thought to myself, they don't want to buy it, they want to take it. And there are three of them, and there's one of me. <laughs> what am I going to do here? And it, literally, this happened. And then the guy that was examining the guitar, again, he was looking at it, and then he looked at the serial number, he looked at his friends, and he said, this isn't it, and they walked out. Now, just to be clear what was going on, they were looking for a stolen guitar. I didn't steal it. I bought it. It was mine, but the serial number indicated that it really belonged to me. And in baptism, God stamps us with the serial mark of his kingdom. His goals, his values, his allegiances, his wants, his desires for us. And so baptism signifies not only that judgment will not harm us because we've gone through the judgment waters with Jesus, but Peter says it is an appeal for a good conscience, meaning that we can live before God in an age where people don't want to live for God. Friends, it means that we live in countercultural ways. It means that when we suffer, we're not despairing like the world, but we have the hope of the vindicated Jesus. It means when the world exalts Again and again, pride, we strive to clothe ourselves with the humble virtue of Jesus, with the humility of the true king. We clothe ourselves in humility. You see, Christ is seated above all powers, and the outcome is certain. And it means that no matter what we go through, we can be assured of his victory. Some of you know uh, that the pastor, Tim Keller, is dealing with stage four pancreatic cancer. And he wrote in his book on the resurrection, a tremendous book, he wrote, here I am, 
and he actually was interviewed later about the book. He said, here I am writing a book about the resurrection, and I realized I only half believe in the resurrection. He told the New York Times, I don't dare pick up that book that I wrote about this and read what I wrote. But he wrote that I don't always believe it. I, I believe it intellectually, but I need to believe it all the way deep down into my heart. And then he wrote, it took several months in which I had to take abstract belief down into my heart and to ex existentially and experientially know it and grow in the assurance of Christ's victory. So friends, if you're willing to embrace the truth of God's word and to pray it down, your confidence, my confidence will grow. And what is our confidence? That we can begin to see what Peter saw. Checkmate. Now let's play out the moves. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that Christ is one. That he has checkmated all those powers and authorities and angels and demons that would oppose him. And Father, as we live in a fallen world that, that rejects him, that says no to Jesus as Savior and therefore in many ways no to us, we pray that we would be assured of his victory. That when we feel like we are losing a medical battle, a spiritual or an emotional or a relational struggle, help us to be confident that Jesus wins. Thank you that we are baptized into him. That he is the boat, that he is the ark of safety that we are acquitted and approved in him. And Father, I pray for anyone here who is struggling today that you would assure them of the victory of Jesus, of their victory. And if there are any that scoff at Jesus, we pray that in this time of patience and waiting that you would grant the gift of faith. For God, judgment is coming. And we want to be found justified in Jesus. We thank you, Father, for this greatest gift that Jesus proclaimed victory, that he went to your right hand and that he is there over all that would crush us and hurt us and pull us apart from you. Thank you that you have brought us in Jesus to yourself, that we get you. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.